Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Kelly Williams agent. What is Renegade Joint Investors? I'm sure you're thinking that right now. Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where several times a week I sit down with people. We do book reviews. We have uh, story time with Jeff, story time with Tommy coming up. Lots of shows for real estate investors and agents or people just interested in real estate. And we sit down, we pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully education. And you know it's coming. We're still stuck at 49 reviews on iTunes, folks. This is a free podcast. If, if you enjoy this podcast, stop, hit pause right now. Wait, wait, don't hit pause yet. Go and rate and review on iTunes, then hit pause. All right. Five stars. Um, go ahead and do it, man. It's free. It really helps out. We want to grow this podcast. If you want to keep listening to it, that's what we need to do. I don't make the rules. This is just how we do it. So rate and review on iTunes. It is greatly appreciated. Also, it takes time out of people's day to come and do this. So if you wouldn't mind, share the podcast all across social media. Let's make it worth their wild. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. And those are the two places to go so you never miss a meeting. We're working on our website still. We had to fire the last developer. It's been a shit shack show, so we're, we'll get it fixed. Uh, hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. And of course, I'm on Snapchat, if I can ever figure it out, at Jeremy A. Burgess. And go to YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right. Legal disclaimer. Don't blame me. It's the world, man. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Joint Investors Show Quote of the Week. I try and pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And I stole this one from Jan. And I think it's a pretty good quote. When you feel like you're nearing the end of your rope, don't slide off. Tie a knot, keep hanging, and remember, there ain't nobody bad like you, whoever the electrifying mojo is. And let me introduce you to my guest, Jan Dykers. Um, Jan found her way into real estate in the early 2000s, first as an assistant for a local investor, and then as a property manager, realtor, and developer. Jan started her own company, her own property management company, JD Management LLC, in 2008, and that grew quickly from a dozen to a few hundred properties. Uh, she merged her business with a boutique real estate brokerage in 2009 and took the name of that business, Suite, S-U-I-T-E, Properties, LLC. Her business partner left the company in 2012. She subcontracted the property management from the large downtown brokerage, The Loft Warehouse, in 2013. And her real estate management portfolio reached 350 properties. Jan started selling real estate for the Loft Warehouse as an associate broker in 2014. And her sales for 2016, which for Metro Detroit are huge, $6 million. That's a big number here. I know it's like four houses in California. But you know what? Here, that's a lot of real estate, okay? She also has experience as a developer converting an historic Brush Park mansion into condominiums. We're going to ask her about that. That's cool as shit. Her next project is renovating a new center slash north end mansion 
turned record label headquarters now vacant into office and creative space. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree in public relations from Wayne State University. She lives in a historic Woodbridge neighborhood, Detroit, with her partner and two pit bull mutts, one of which she adopted from us, which is why we like her so much. Definitely go check out Jan Dykers. Go to Facebook.com forward slash Jan dot Dykers, D-I-J-K-E-R-S. This will all be in the show notes. And go ahead and search her on Instagram, Jan, D-I-J-K-E-R-S, or at Uma dot von dot futures on instagram welcome jen thank you awesome i'm pretty excited to have you on the, the podcast so and i didn't even necessarily know all the stuff you did when i invited you on i just know you were doing big stuff <laughs> so one of the reasons i want to have you on the podcast is because you've seen downtown go down all the way down this is downtown detroit and then i don't know if we're all the way up but we are significantly higher than we used to be and you've watched this whole thing happen and we've been involved in it in the entire time. Before we get into that, though, what got you in the real estate? How'd you get started? Um, well, it started with my love for the city of Detroit that came before real estate. And I had just graduated from college with a public relations degree and realized I didn't really want to do anything in public relations. So <laughs> I was bartending, waiting tables, having fun you know, enjoying being a 20 year old, 20 something year old. And my mom was working for a real estate investment um, training company, as you mentioned before, one of the gurus. And so she would travel around the United States with this company, with the guru, you know, basically upselling these real estate uh, courses, you know, they, they get you, they say free real estate training for a weekend, you know, learn how to flip houses and do short sales. So people show up for this free course and they don't really teach you a lot, but then they upsell you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of real estate courses. So one of the gurus had an elective course that he had started teaching in the early to mid two thousands on specifically on investing in Detroit even before the real estate crash, uh, Detroit had been a pretty interesting place to invest, mostly because uh, comparatively, rental rates have always been a lot higher uh, percentage-wise than real estate value. So even before the crash and property values hit rock, rock bottom, it was still an interesting place to invest for investors. So he had a course specifically on wholesaling in Detroit, and she said, I have this wayward daughter who loves Detroit, and I think wayward she'd be daughter. really interested in this. So she said, hey, I can get you into this class for free if you want to take it. And I jumped at it. And after that weekend, I said, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to do real estate. What is it you love, um, or what has it attracted you to Detroit that you love so much about Detroit? Um, so... I'm really attracted to all of the thing. I think the fact that it's an underdog, I, you know, I always root for the underdog. Um, it has a certain, uh, dark beauty. The, the crumbling and the decay and is, is really beautiful to me. I mean, it's, it's haunting and it's always attracted me. I mean, I, I used to, uh, in high school, go downtown to go to underground parties and, you know, listen to techno music. And, um, so that was the first time I had kind of been downtown, um, on my own besides, you know, going to the Fisher theater with my parents and things like that. Um, and so then in my high school photography class, I just started going downtown by myself to take photos of interesting buildings and decaying buildings. And I guess it was well before the term, uh, 
what do they call it? Uh, ruin porn. Ruin porn yeah. had been coined, but I was fascinated. So I just really felt connected to the city. It just felt like it, it um, just spoke to my soul. That's an interesting. Um, it's funny you say that about the rental rates too, because that's actually what attracted Gina and I to Michigan and finally Detroit. You know, we, we lived on the West Coast and like cash flow is basically for the most part just something you read about in a book. Usually yeah, it's negative cash flow unless exactly. you buy all cash. Yeah, right? you buy it in California to have an equity gain and you're basically subsidizing your rent. Hopefully equity gain, right? <laughs> Depending on when you buy. Right. Yeah, a lot and of people then, lost, yeah, right? Yeah, and then hopefully you sell and that's when you make your money. So yeah, yeah Detroit definitely has cash flow even when uh, property values were a lot higher. So when did you – you started this with this wholesale course with mm-hmm. this – um guru, but that's a lot different than what you're currently doing. Mm-hmm. So um, once they got the tentacles on you and you started getting into real estate, uh-huh. at what point did you realize, wait a second, I dig this and I want to do more of it? And kind of how did you work your way to your to what you're currently doing? Okay. So uh, the first uh, thing that we did was my parents, you know, because they were involved um, in real estate through these investment courses and all these other people and resources also wanted to invest. And um, so we started to, you know, uh, look into doing different investment options in Detroit. We bought a property, um, through the city of Detroit, through the planning development department, a decaying two family home in the Dexter and Davison area, horrible area, then horrible area now. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, bought it with, uh, hard money and fixed it up and sold it to another investor for way too much money. But at the time it appraised and all that stuff. And it probably like fell to shit the next year. But you know, we basically broke even. And, um, what year was that? That was probably 2003. That's pretty early. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you got in way earlier than I did. So, um, somewhere around there. So, so breaking even for your first investment is is I think expected, but it was so much blood, sweat and tears that, you know, it was disappointing, but I learned a ton, a ton. Cause I was really on the ground working with the contractors and getting this thing done. Do you mind if I interrupt you? And do you, how much do you remember about your first deal? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, can you, can you walk us through? Cause that's one of the questions I always ask okay. is the first deal question. Everybody loves the first deal question. Right. Yeah. So I want to say, I think we probably bought it for, Eight or ten thousand. Um, we probably put seventy five thousand, seventy thousand into it. That is a huge rehab in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, that is and huge. then sold it for eighty five. So <laughs> yeah. Ooh. All right. How long did it take you to rehab it? <laughs> a few months. Yeah. Did you do the work yourself, or did you hire it out? I hired it out. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I was very involved on a day-to-day basis, picking up materials, you know, visiting the job site, making sure things happened and kept kept it moving. Anything go wrong? Oh, yeah, everything. Hey, went wrong. What went wrong? Walk <laughs> us through it. Yeah. Okay. So what was interesting about – did you ever hear of this company called Royal American Mortgage? No. So the, I don't, they're not in business anymore, but they're, they were a big hard money lender in the Detroit area. So, you know, you would identify a property that you wanted. They would send out an appraiser to do an after repair value, give, you know, assess how much money you would need to get it to after repair state. And, you know, if the numbers worked, 
they would loan you the money at a very high interest rate to acquire. And, you know, you would get the work done. They would come and inspect it. They would give you a draw. You would get more work done. So they, I think they really wanted people to, to let, they wanted to lend to people. So they underestimated the cost of what it would cost to rehab. So we ended up spending a lot more on this property than, you know, than they had told us that they would. So we were having to, put in, you know, for every $10,000 of a draw we needed, we would maybe have to put in, you know, $20,000, you know, just that kind of a thing. So we were really having to finance a lot of it ourselves just towards the end. So that was something that we didn't anticipate. I was also working with a contractor that, you know, he just wanted to make it work for us and he was skilled. Um, you know, there's that adage, uh, good, fast or cheap pick two. Yeah, that's so true. So he was like, I would say good and cheap. And, but not fast. No. And uh, you can't get all three, can you? No. <laughs> so, like a unicorn. And he had his own personal problems. And, you know, but, you know, I think I remember the 11th hour. I'm in the bathroom with him, like, you know, scraping cock off of the old historic tile and stuff. I mean, I just did what it took to get this done. And, um, so yeah, I think we didn't we didn't anticipate contingencies. The property got broken into, which is a shock, you know, being in Detroit. That never happens, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't really. I think maybe some contractor tools were stolen. It wasn't really anything too um, consequential. So fortunately, that really didn't set us back. I think the biggest thing was not really accurately calculating how much money we were going to need to finish this project. That's a difficult thing to do, especially mm-hmm. when you start tearing into things and it's na- mm-hmm. always a nasty surprise. Flippers get a lot of, I did a 200 of them and I don't do them anymore for that. Some of those exact reasons you mm-hmm. just literally wore me out and you're always wrong and you always miss something and mm-hmm. they steal. you never get the deadlines. Like it's just, man, it was too much for me. Mm-hmm. Flippers get that hero money and you can have it. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. I'll just wholesale and, Sell shit on retail too. Yeah. Get paid. We were so bright eyed and bushy tailed. We really just wanted to make it work. And so I think we overlooked a lot of key uh, analysis that could have caused us a lot of heartache. Like rule number one, like don't buy that property. Yeah. <laughs> like find a different one. So after you got done with this one, uh-huh. what was next? So the next is an exciting one because um, I live in that house today. Um, so again, I was still looking through this uh, planning and development, you know, they used to publish a list, um, and they would have like a closed bid auction every month or something. So I had been living in Woodbridge for, um, several years already, which is where I live now. And I see a property on Warren Avenue come up on their list for auction for $30,000 starting bid, I believe. And we were like, people would be losing their mind right now. If this is today, <laughs> wasn't it? Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, we want, you know, we want this property. And so we put in a bid, I think for 35 and we got it. Um, and, uh, it was occupied. Um, so we didn't know we weren't, I don't believe we were able to actually get into the property um, prior to closing. Um, so you bought this for $35,000 sight unseen. Mm-hmm. You are a high risk individual. Yeah. <laughs> well, we knew that it was occupied. So, I mean, we knew that it was marginally habitable. Um, Still, that's a, that's a ballsy move. Like <laughs> just sight unseen. We're going to do it. I think most of the um, planning and development uh, sales were sight unseen. Um, 
especially the occupied ones, because they weren't going to disturb, you know, people that didn't own the property that were living in the home. So at that point, we had made a connection with an investor who was willing to give us a loan to get the rehab done. So it's like a little private money. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, the, so our plan was, you know, get the property, uh, evict the occupants and then do a renovation. And the day after we closed, they, the occupants or somebody firebombed the property. Oh man. (laughs) I believe Molotov cocktail was on the fire report. Oh, the fire department. So they were just unhappy that they weren't going to. I don't know if it was a coincidence or because I can't remember if I had any contact with the people beforehand or I, I, I can't remember, but, uh, our, you know, we made an insurance claim and we didn't get as much as we thought that we would, Ugh, of course. Always. Um, so I think we probably ended up putting, uh, you know, a hundred, maybe like 70 to 90,000 into it full gut renovation, um, refinanced, uh, you know, got, you know, paid off this person, pulled a little bit of money out. How was, how bad was the fire damage? Cause fire damage is always tough. I yeah. Mean, how bad was it? Um, so the third floor was pretty unscathed. Um, but we did have to take down all of the plaster on the first and second floor. Um, no, I think maybe a little bit of structural damage on, in the rear porch of the house, but it wasn't, it was just enough that we lost most of the, historic character on the first and second floor really all yeah, that was left bummer. was the floors yeah yeah floors are nice you're like a huge rehabber like your first two rehabs are these enormous detroit rehabs uh-huh. that just right out of the gate fire damage on what that's that's crazy how long did it take you to do the rehab on this one uh yeah probably i would i'm guessing probably like four months or something like that's that that's a pretty quick turnaround mm-hmm. yeah yep. damn you start a development company, you know, <laughs> rehabbing for all these people. I don't have the stomach for it anymore. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we. What was nice about it is we did. You know, everything has been completely rewired. You know, that's something you don't do a lot in historic houses because you don't want to take down the plaster. Um, so yeah, we we just started running it, and I only moved in last year, but it had been a rental property for me for you know over a decade. That's a long time now. When you bought it, what was the value? Because this is the interesting oh, part. Oh, okay. So right? when so our first refinance, so we could pay off our lender, original private lender, was like 140. That was in that must have been 2004, 2005, 2009. It had it was worth uh, 40 thousand. Yeah, that's a huge drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and you had now- to ride out a storm too. <laughs> and some really interesting things happened along the way. Um, one of the my partners in the property filed for bankruptcy. Her um, the mortgage was in her name, so somehow this asset you know got passed along, got rebought by a couple different companies. Um, who and at some point we had like a no interest mortgage as a result of the bankruptcy. So you know um, she had basically said like, hey, as long as you keep this this um, mortgage paid, you can it's your property to deal with. You know we don't we don't want to have anything to do with this anymore so regret huh uh, good for you (laughs) it was a stressful you know and it wasn't worth anything and i think we were for a little bit maybe upside down on the mortgage versus the rent um so but that no interest helped and then at some point it got sold the asset got sold to like a debt servicing company who contacted me and said give me fifty five thousand, and it was maybe we owed 90 
call it even. So, and it probably wasn't even worth fifty five thousand when you when you did that, right? <laughs> I think at that point, because that was only a couple of years ago, the value okay. had gone back up. Yeah, and now I'm looking at probably around two hundred thousand. Yeah, Woodbridge is hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably some at two twenty five would be my guess. Yeah. I, only because I've been looking recently. Yeah. So, but yeah, if you look at the long term value, it's definitely like a. a wave lots of ups and downs well one thing that i i can't ignore is the people that come in and make it long term and do buy and hold long term Mm -hmm. seem to win more often than the flippers and the wholesalers right Mm -hmm. over the long haul their net worth increases significantly more so Mm -hmm. and this is a great point you spot high and then it crashed all the way down you'll twice what you owe Mm -hmm. and then bam now you're you're all the way on the other side you know 10 years later Mm -hmm. and it's looking pretty or more than that 12 13 years later it's looking like a pretty damn smart investment right yeah you look like a genius (laughs) and explain woodbridge to people who who don't know because i know some people local but 30 percent of the podcasts are people out of state and out of country okay so. so woodbridge is a historic neighborhood just west of Wayne State University, specifically just west of their athletic complex. It's made up of three, four main streets um, and uh, has, you know, several hundred houses uh, in total. Because of its proximity to the university, there's a lot of students and a lot of transient uh, people that live there that, you know, move in and out, you know, every year, a lot of rental properties, um, but also a lot of long-term homeowners, people that have lived and owned their houses since the 60s and 70s and potentially even longer. So a lot of like really hardcore residents. It's a really special community. I think that's why I've stayed there over two decades and lived in multiple houses because because of those long-term neighbors, there's just a really tight community. We have a very active Facebook page. Um, if I were to go on the Facebook page tonight and say, hey, I'm locked out of my house. Does anybody have a locksmith that can come rescue me? I would have four neighbors that would offer to come pick my locks at that moment. Uh, we it's get great a, neighbors. Yeah, we get a lot of, uh, hey, there's here's a picture of a dog that I just saw running in front of my yard without a leash. And I, you know, five minutes later, that dog has been identified and returned to whoever's yard he escaped from. So it's um, a very strong, really special community. And what I think is really interesting also about Woodbridge, Woodbridge is in 48208 zip code, which is probably one of the poorest zip codes in the entire nation. Yet there's this little sliver of our zip code called Woodbridge that has these super high value homes. So it's just a really interesting, uh, you know, uh, mix of, of property in this one zip code. If you were to look at the zip code at a, at a whole, it'd probably be considered pretty destitute, but Woodbridge is the sort of propping up that it's still, it's one of the poorest in the nation, I believe. It is crazy watching what has happened in Woodbridge over the last six, seven years. Talk about regret. The things I could have bought at the prices I could have bought it. And you get on the MLS now, you're like, what? Regret. Regret. I don't know. What do you think kind of spawned that? Because it did to, from looking outside mm-hmm. in, and I'm not in it like you are. I mean, mm-hmm. you've been there 20 years, right? It just like, it seemed like it came out of nowhere. All of a sudden, there's restaurants and bars. Mm-hmm. And bikes and park and boom, all of a sudden property values up. I think there's a few things that uh, contributed to the popularity of the neighborhood, one of which was um, in, uh, I want to say, 
2011-12. And this was for, you know, midtown, downtown area of Detroit as well. Uh, A few of the different employers, um, Henry Ford Hospital, Detroit Medical Center, Wayne State University, um, uh, all uh, created a program called Live Midtown, where if you were an employee of one of these um, uh, places and you rented in one of these areas, you would get your rent subsidized up to $2,500 a year um, to live downtown. So it was basically trying to get people who worked in these places to to live in the same places. And that was a huge turning point for popularity of renting in the downtown area. It got a lot more people who had maybe never considered it before to move downtown. When I moved into my last place in Woodbridge before I moved into my own property, my landlord, it was vacant for six months. We moved in to a four-bedroom, one-bath for $800 a month. And when we moved out, he no longer had vacancies. He had 100-person waiting lists for his rental properties. And when he moved out, he did a rehab on our unit and rented it for twenty five hundred. So within that time, there was a huge increase in demand for downtown housing, and that that program definitely contributed to that. Um, so on top of that, we had also uh, most of the zoning in our neighborhood had been changed. So where one time when the neighborhood was built, it was previously all. Um, you know, residential and commercial on the main arteries like Trumbull and Warren, um, the zoning had been changed to only allow residential. So we had to do a huge zoning change, which took a long time and a lot of contribution from different members of the community to get the zoning so that we could open a restaurant and a coffee shop. So that was a big change that we had to go through to even make it you know, so we could have the Woodbridge pub and, yeah, you know, great pie pub. and so, and we're going to have, be having a coffee shop open and some other different, um, uh, businesses that are opening. But for the longest time, we, we couldn't see the future development of our neighborhood because we couldn't add that component that so many other neighborhoods have, like, you know, a coffee shop or a restaurant or a bar that they, that you can walk to. That's part of downtown life too. It's hard to think because I wasn't here when this happened. It was hard to think of Woodbridge without it, or I wasn't paying attention anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did it take you guys to get get that passed, rezoned? Uh, I think it took years because um, nobody. It was sort of an elective thing. It wasn't like any um, political figure was pushing for it. It was kind of a, something that um, some of the neighborhood stakeholders who wanted to open um, the owner of the Woodbridge Pub. Um, he, you know, he knew he needed this zoning variance to open that, so he was able to get a variance of the zoning. I attended the zoning hearing, so I remember. You know, we all came out in um, support for him, but then after that, anything more than to be open, you really need a change of zoning law. I mean, you can't just request variances for every single restaurant that needs to open. So at that point, we knew we needed a full overhaul. Um, One of our Woodbridge residents, she works for planning development now, but I think at the time she was working um, uh, for a private company, but had worked with the city before. And she said, I'll write the zoning change. So, because nobody in the city has any sense of urgency about this, this was several years ago. That's I mean, the nicest way I've heard it. But <laughs> <laughs> so she said, "I'll write it 
if that will help kind of speed this through and the, you know, eventually the zoning uh, was approved and now we can, you know, look forward to not having to struggle to open the rest of these businesses. So really it's two things, private companies incentivizing their employees by subsidizing their rent. What about purchase? They subsidize purchase. There was a subsidized purchase as well. Um, they, I think they would give you 25,000 in a forgivable loan. If you lived in the property for, you know, 10 years, then you wouldn't have to pay back the 25,000, 10 years. I like it. That's aggressive. Um, yeah. So, Commit. so those programs are no longer, um, available. The run, the, I think, uh, Quicken came up with a similar program for their employees and that one still is funded, but the live midtown one is no longer funded. They, they've. They did fine. They, yeah. they they've reached mission accomplished, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody just like I don't know how many of their employees live down there, but we service a lot of them as mm-hmm. well, and it's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I bumped into you um, even after you adopted the dog because of all your activities down there, and a client to uh, got a little wishy washy on a property that you sold, which is uh, pretty exciting. I want to get to that. So basically, zoning and uh, these incentives brought all these people in. What do you think attracted them specifically, though, to Woodbridge? Because there's Midtown, there's mm-hmm. New Center, there's a lot of development, right? Right. So Woodbridge has um, a great stock of homes. You know, if you live in Midtown, you basically could mostly live in a condo or an apartment. There's really not that many options for homes, um, whether it be a single family or, you know, a, a flat, a two family home. Um, it is really close to Wayne state. It's, uh, but not too close. So it feels like a neighborhood. Um, it's beautiful. If you walk down, you know, Avery or Commonwealth in the fall or the spring, I mean, it's breathtaking. It's just beautiful. It's peaceful. The architecture is incredible. Um, there's you know, trees and gardens and flowers. So I think people are really attracted to the community, the beauty, um, the proximity, um, and, uh, and this, the style of architecture that really yeah. appeals to a lot of people. I love it. And it's remarkably close to downtown mm-hmm. too. You know, it's kind of strange being in such a large city and uniquely Detroit has all this space. Mm-hmm. Like this is right next to downtown and that still has space, mm-hmm. still room to grow. It's one of the things that I'm, it like, this doesn't happen in New York, mm-hmm. San Francisco. You can't find this space anywhere yeah. else. It's just completely surrounding downtown Detroit. There's an enormous amount of space that you can literally live in a neighborhood downtown. It's mm-hmm. very strange. Yeah, I believe when it was first built, it was considered to be the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny to think about, right? Yeah. I met some old guys. Um, I bought some of their houses in 2007 and 2008 where they told me when they were kids, they used to go to Eight Mile to Pheasant Hunt. Like there mm. just wasn't. And it just blew my mind. Like, wait a second. You mean – that was where you went. Yeah, we went hunting. We went rabbit hunting, pheasant hunting at eight mile. Now it's just houses everywhere, development everywhere. Yeah. Got to go 32, 36 mile development. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to think about what's happened in such mm-hmm. a short period of time. So after you did your duplex project in Woodbridge, I'm sure you're doing other things at the same time, but how did your real estate career develop and what else did you do? So as people started to hear that I was um, involved in real estate, I was starting to get a lot of requests to, you know, can you sell my house? Can you help me buy a house? Well, I didn't have a real estate license at that time. So that sort of like that next piece for me was like, oh yeah, I'm leaving all of this money on the table. I know a ton of people sharing my real estate license and- um, uh, you know, start buying and helping people buy and sell houses. What year was that? 
That was 2005. Okay, that's still pretty early. Mm-hmm. So we're still we're it's still a boom for uh, well, 2000. Well, actually, so yeah, when I really started to get started with real estate sales, the the crash was starting. I mean, I I didn't you hear the stories of a lot of realtors and they really really did well during those times. I mean, they just did nothing and got a ton of money and I hadn't really started to establish myself in my real estate career at that time. I got my license, but I really wasn't doing a lot with it at that time. When you really start to dive in right in the crash? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 2010, you know, I could sell 10 houses in a month. For ten thousand dollars each, <laughs> the thousand dollar commission each one. Yeah, go home with seven hundred fifty bucks, feeling good yeah, about exactly. wait, that. Almost almost covers my gas bill. Yeah, exactly. That's the downside mm-hmm. to dealing with buyers in Detroit. How did you? Because that's probably going to happen mm-hmm. again. Something like that. How did you qualify your buyers when you're going through that time? Because commissions were so low mm-hmm. on something like that. It yeah, makes it difficult. So I, I started at that point, I had already started to get into property management. So most of these people were property management clients. They were Ah. like, we want to buy houses you're going to manage them, help me find them. So that makes sense. You weren't just making money off Mm -hmm. of the purchase of the sale. Mm -hmm. They were clients and okay. Mm -hmm. So you're serious. What made you start a property management company? Talk about a thankless job, especially in Detroit. (laughs) So, um, so I started working with an investor helping her manage her inventory. So she had a bunch of houses and she would buy them and fix them up and rent them. And sometimes she would sell them to other people. And so I was helping her with her, basically uh, sort of a manager of her portfolio. I would help manage the properties. I would manage her construction crews. I would do every, you know, buy a property, get the insurance, uh, you know, help her get the financing and get the, all the little things that go into getting the property transfer affidavit file, getting the utilities on, meeting the water department, like all, you know, I was her girl Friday. I was, I was getting all of that stuff done for her. So I sort of got acclimated, um, to property management, learning how, you know, how to, you know, talk to tenants, write up leases, how the landlord tenant legal system works and all of that stuff. I kind of, that's how I cut my teeth. Um, I then was um, uh, poached by another investor um, who had come to Detroit and was trying to do something on a larger scale, buy properties, um, get them fixed up, get them rented, sell them to other investors. We would continue to manage them. Um, This crazy Lithuanian woman. um, And uh, she was starting to... I realized uh, run a Ponzi schemes, sort of like fix them up, um, sell them to other investors. Eventually, she would collect the money like the house was supposed to be finished, and then she would get it fixed up. Eventually, the houses weren't getting fixed up. She would just send them pictures of other houses that were finished. When I realized this was going on, I was like, I got to get out of here. Uh, one of the contractors that was working with her also realized it at the same time. So we kind of started talking about, you know, exiting, you know, from working with this person. And, uh, uh, he said, you know, I have all these clients that I do renovations for that hate their property managers. They're getting screwed over. There's a lot of crooked people out there. Tons of them, man. If you start a property management company, I can get you all of this business. And, I'm looking to quit this job that I had where I was getting very secure income and didn't know what my next move was going to be. And that sounded really attractive. One of those sliding door moments, like I could have gone through door A and opened the property management company or door B and not have. And sometimes I look back on that moment. (laughs) What was I thinking? Or damn, it was a good decision. I 
wish I maybe it property management has opened up a lot of doors for me and I'm really grateful for it, but sometimes it is definitely thankless. Oh yeah. We need you, but man, that's doesn't pay enough and it's way too yeah. hard and especially honest property managers. Yeah. So but I, I did it. I, I got my LLC and I got my first couple clients and like literally started with fifty dollars in my bank account and two clients and four properties and just built it up from there. Man, that is shit is exactly the American dream right there. I got fifty <laughs> bucks, an LLC. <laughs> that's all i need baby i'm going to the top (laughs) and the worst city i don't know about the worst city one of the most difficult cities in america anyway perhaps the world Mm -hmm. to manage real estate yeah i have some stories oh yeah um i want to get to them too i I think i'm gonna write a memoir one day you totally should well you 20 years in woodbridge too i mean that's You've that's why I want to have you on the podcast too. You've like seen it all. Mm-hmm. Two whole cycles and one of the craziest times, I think, mm-hmm. in Detroit's history, too. I mean, at least as far as our lifetimes mm-hmm. are concerned, right? I mean, it's kind of an amazing you got an amazing glimpse to everything that happened right on the ground floor. But let's let's focus it on this property management okay. thing. Cause so you got fifty bucks, an LLC, and yeah. a promise of future business mm-hmm. and a couple clients. Mm-hmm. What year was this? This was 2008. Oh, man. So we're right in the heart of the crash, Mm -hmm. right? REOs everywhere. Mm -hmm. It was like thousands of properties on the MLS. Mm -hmm. How'd you grow it to 350 plus properties? Uh, So I think word got around pretty fast that I was an honest property manager and I worked hard for my clients. So I got all of my businesses all for property management has all ever been referral based. So this contractor did just basically, you know, send all of his clients, you know, people were coming to Detroit to buy property and renovate it because they heard about these awesome opportunities. And do you know, property manager? Why? Yes, I do. So, um, you know, I was picking up a ton of ton of business. Some of those clients I still have to this day. Um, they've you know been my longest clients, and uh, you know have stuck it out, and um, you know have have done fairly well for themselves. And some of them have gotten screwed over by contractors and property managers. And you know, by the time we get to them, it's too late, and you know they just don't have any money left, and really that happens can't a do lot. anything. Yeah. Have to sell for a loss. And it's almost like triage, like emergency room real estate triage. Mm-hmm. Depending on where you catch them, yeah, depends on what help you can really do. And sometimes they come to me and I say, "What's the address?" And I look it up on Google Street Maps and I say, "Sorry, I would love to help you." And I'm probably one of the only people who, who would do this and not, you know, screw you over again. Um, but there's going to be more work involved here than. I can act, you know, that I'll be able to make from you. So I'm going to respectively decline your business. Yeah. You have to do that a lot, Mm -hmm. don't you? Especially in Detroit. And I used to never do that at the beginning. And I, you know, it was more, I think I made more work for myself, but I I learned a lot, but now we're at the point where I don't have to take on um, the the business if I don't want to. So it looked like at some point you brought in a partner. Mm -hmm. This is always interesting because I have really mixed feelings about partners. Mm -hmm. I was involved in two very bad partnerships. One that went really, really bad Mm -hmm. that just totally screwed up my life and everything else like that. But I've seen successful partnerships Mm -hmm. too. So the partnership was, um, uh, she was a real estate agent and had a brokerage and said, you know, let's be partners. You run the property management business and I'll run the brokerage and, you know, we'll have this multifaceted company. And, um, 
that was great because we had uh, the support of, you know, the real estate commissions coming in while we could really build the portfolio for the property management. And um, uh, that was in 2009, 2010. Um, this is a friend of mine. Um, uh, she's opened a lot of businesses and she'll be the first one to tell you that she opens a business gets sick of it and then leaves it for her partners. And so she's left this sort of rampage of, you know, former businesses. Um, so, you know, she decided I'm just over it at a certain point. I don't want to work for myself. I can't do this anymore. Um, and that was at the beginning of 2012, where I think we were all really starting to feel this immense crunch, um, with no end in sight, um, at the end of 2011 from, from the, you know, the economy. And, uh, it was hard on everybody. I mean, we all have carnage. <laughs> oh yeah. The struggle, the struggle was real, man. It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, I, so I understood it, but I, I couldn't, I just couldn't give it all up. I mean, I had too much invested to just drop it and, and give up at that time. I had to push and struggle through it. That's like four years of hard work right there. You yeah. just don't want to walk away from it. Right. Yes. How, how bad were things though? I mean, like walk us through it. Like, I don't need to know exact numbers, but for somebody to leave after almost four years, that's not exactly quitting after the first hardship. Right. That, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that, um, she was, sick of supporting like you know we were kind of we were splitting the real estate sales commissions her commissions so we could put the money we were making from property management back into the business to build mm -hmm. it up and i think at some point she just thought i'm sick of not making money i'm sick of sharing yeah. this i you know it's a lot of work it's more work than i thought it would be i you know i'm done i yeah. i don't you know but you're like i want to grind this out how many clients did you have at that point in time? I think we had about a th about 300 units. See, clients, I'd say about uh, 75 clients, see, 50, 75 clients. What's the magic number for property management when it starts to make sense? Because I know it's a bigger number than most people realize, yeah, at least in Detroit. I think probably 500. Yeah, I don't you're think still there? I'm, I don't yeah. think I'm at that point yet where it really – I think um, you know I've had to figure this whole thing out on my own. Dude, that's crazy. You're like eight years into it and you're like, still not a, that's commitment <laughs> right there. You're like, I'm writing this thing out. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's going to take a couple hundred more units before it's, uh, it make it that I don't need to physically be involved in the day to day that I can draw a salary and not have to work for that salary. Yeah, boy, it's thankless in Detroit too. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to some of these stories. Cause I don't think, I know people read about them, uh -huh. but when you experience them in real life and in real time, I've got them. I have mm -hmm. just horror stories like what property management companies and all mm -hmm. that. Um, what were some of the hardest, the hardest times? Like we all know things go wrong, right? But it seems like there's always that story where something went wrong at the absolute worst time. Right. Yeah. So I had one of my employees, um, get, uh, like, uh, you know, mugged and um, robbed at one of the properties, oh, like got smashed, smashed in the head. And um, that was pretty bad. Um, but I think, mo you know, most of the stories come from just sort of the nonsense that tenants uh, put you through. 
um, you know, the tenant that was arrested for, you know, um, from like from shimming up the electrical pole, trying to reconnect his electrical <laughs> service, you know, <laughs> like, how come you can't pay the rent? Oh, my husband got arrested for trying to jack the electricity, you know, things like that. I won some, uh, a tenant had given me the complete runaround for her rent money, told me, you know, I called her, I was supposed to pick it up that day and meet an appraiser at the property. Um, she, I called her from the front porch. Oh, I'm at school. I forgot I had class. Uh, you know, we go into the house cause you know, we had to go do this appraisal and I found her in the basement hiding under a mattress. Are you, you know? kidding me? <laughs> She, what do you say in a situation well, she like jumped, that? Uh, I did a double take because I, I look at this mattress and I see this figure like sort of under it. And I'm like, is there somebody sleeping? Is that a dead person? Like, what is happening? And she pops up and says, Jan. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, what is happening? And the appraiser was like, I'm I took I got all my measurements. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. Look at the time. <laughs> <laughs> how did you, I'm just curious. How did you explain yourself after you get caught in a lie like that? I just, she, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was like, you know what? The, we're, we're just, we're done. I mean, the eviction's already in process. I mean, there's nothing. And I, part of me, you know, it's frustrating and, and you, you know, you don't take it personally, but you're really fighting for your clients because you want to do a good job for them. And you also see that this person is a single mom who's raising two kids in Detroit, you know, one of which is like a teenage man, you know, you know, you, you know that their struggle is real and you know that that those are their survival skills. You know, you got to, keep the the you know the roof over the kids heads and food on the table and you know these are these are real survival skills whether or not they're right or the right thing to do i could appreciate you know what she was doing to keep keep living and keep you know keep everybody alive so i feel like criticizing her hiding skills though <laughs> like i think you could have done a lot better job than under the mattress i don't think she was expecting us to go down Ooh, <laughs> she's like oh that's right so she's like we're gonna be safe down here <laughs> yeah you need measurements for the basement too yeah fyi i learned that the hard way too so um what do you what was your favorite like good outcome story like where it looked like it was all going wrong but either you or Providence or whatever saved it at the end. Because we always talk about bad things too. So mm -hmm. I don't, why wouldn't we talk about things where it looks like, or what, what is um, J.R.R. Tolkien said there should be a word. We have a uh, catastrophe uh -huh. and he wanted to create a word, you catastrophe, where everything looks like it's all going wrong, but the last second all works out perfectly. Okay. Do you have any stories like that? Yeah. So one comes to mind. So I, um, so this business partner for the property management business um, was on her way out and uh, we started to get into a legal battle over the assets of the company, which were basically none except a building that we had purchased in the business's name. Um, we were able to really cool um, building on Grand Boulevard and John R uh, was originally built as a single family home turned into com commercial use very quickly, most famously became the headquarters for D-Town Records, which was a competitor with Motown. Um, never made it as big, which makes their records a lot more rare um, among sole aficionados. Um, so in 2010, um, I had gone house shopping with a client. <clears throat> we went into this property. It was not right for what he was looking for, but I was like, this is a really special property. Some magic sort of light bulb, you know, angel, like 
wings or, you know, there was some magic that I felt when I was in there. <laughs> so I got back to the office and I said to her, we have to go see this house. I don't know why I, this building, we walked, she walked in there and she said, we need to buy this, this property. So she immediately noticed it too. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, well, We were going to build our offices there. So we bought it basically, uh, you know, she called up a old friend of her dad's got a private loan kind of on a handshake, um, for us to pay off within five years. And, uh, we got the property. Um, then the partnership fell apart before that. So this was the one asset of the company and we're kind of, you know, fighting over, well, you know, the company's worth money. No, it's actually not. Um, so long and bitter, brutal story, but I ended up with, to be able to keep the building and the company. Um, and, uh, but was struggling and this was 2011. So paying a $2,000 a month payment on this thing, plus having to pay the taxes, um, was difficult. Um, so I basically was paying the mortgage religiously, but kind of paying the taxes when I could and they're falling behind and I was not going to let this thing get foreclosed, but I was taking as much time as I needed because I needed that extra time. You know, you can go in the city of Detroit, basically three years of unpaid taxes before you'll get foreclosed. So I was paying at the last minute every single year. Man, I know exactly. You're very understated. And <laughs> I, I know what kind for you because Wayne County and the city of Detroit, it's like owing the mob money. Mm. Once you go past a year, man, it's it's like 24%. It's like what, a percent and a half a month or whatever. It might as well be a hard money loan at that point. Mm-hmm. So if you're letting it fall back, things must have been really tough. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I was just trying to make it all work. I mean, we couldn't afford to buy the building to begin with, but we just felt like we had to. So this was the end of um, 2013, I think. Um, we I had six months left on the loan before it was paid off. And I get a call from my business partner and she said, Joe, the guy who gave us the money has, tr- has been trying to call me. And I said, fuck, he's going to call the loan. He's getting the non-payment of tax notifications. He's going to call the loan. Mm. I'm like, we, ha- you know, you have to tell him. This is a friend of her, her deceased father. You have to tell him it's not going to go into foreclosure. I'm going to pay it off. It's almost. And she said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll call him. I'll talk to him. And she calls him up and he said, you guys have, I, I never lend money to family because they always screw me over. You guys have paid this mortgage religiously every single month on time. I have never had to call. You know what? I don't want any more money. Send me the papers. I'm so glad I asked. That is awesome. (laughs) Send me the papers. I will sign the discharge. Boom. She did. Just like that. Mm -hmm. Man, that's like a breath of fresh air, right? Yeah. So I thought he was going to call the loan. Here he was saying... Brink of disaster. It's all over. How am I going to solve this problem? I'm barely hanging on and boom. Yep. Dude, that's so. awesome. Is that the project I saw the picture that you posted on Instagram for the, or is he talking about the guy, the guy who was trying to, I'm, I was, you posted a picture on Instagram about um, a future development project with somebody trying to save the history or um, are these so related that, at all or? 
Mm, I can't remember which one. That may have been Woodward and Graham. That may have just been an um, an, an event that I went Might to for a building that's yeah. being developed right about, about a block away from there. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if they were tied. You're, you're, so just the same neighborhood. Yeah. What are you doing? Do you still have that building? I do. Or? Okay. Yep. So I sat on it for a few years because I just Don't sell it. No. Oh, no way. I didn't have the wherewithal. So I just took on a partner. He, he bought into half the project. We are going to renovate that structure if anybody wants to it's 3040 east grand boulevard so if anybody wants put it out in the universe it sounds like a cool property so if anybody wants to check it out on google street maps um it was the headquarters of uh uh, d-town records and um so we're going to renovate it into office space i imagine uh probably be best suited for a design company or architecture firm uh we currently have a letter of intent with um uh, a company called Detroit Teacher Village, which sort of offers um, co-working space for people in the educational community, which is a really very cool concept. Um, we're hoping that it'll work out because financing needs to happen and a lot of things need to happen. But um, but we have most of our plans in place. We just need to get our financing in place. And then we also have the vacant lot next to it, which will eventually become mixed use. It'll be um, commercial on the first floor, residential on the second and third. Um, we'll do some very modern design, maybe with shipping containers or something like that to, to sort of contrast the historic facade of the original structure. Dude, that sounds like a cool project. Mm-hmm. What else? So you held on to this thing the whole time and just by the skin of your teeth? Oh, well, man. so after the mortgage was discharged, I got caught up on the taxes very quickly. Oh, and yeah. that was pretty easy to maintain at that point. Man, so no no work at it in the meantime. So this is like total like future. Man, mm-hmm. that yeah. takes a lot of liking you more and more. That's some serious shit right there. <laughs> it's like, I got this idea and I got to just suffer till I can get there and hear it fast forward. There you are. See, suffering pays off, you know, mm-hmm. if you dedicate yourself to it. So at some point, though, you had to go full time on this real estate thing, mm-hmm. right? Because I know you did six million mm-hmm. last year, which mm-hmm. in Detroit by yourself is a pretty huge number. That's mm-hmm. a lot of transactions. Yeah. How did your real estate agent career um, develop? Sounds like there were some synergies between your property management and your development mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So I I always wanted to get into real estate sales a lot more, but I just really didn't have the the wherewithal um, and selling. I had a ton of investor clients, but selling $10,000 houses is not yeah. really uh, a great way to create you know, a lot of uh, wealth and income. So, but, but, but that was the base that I started with. Um, so when my partner, uh, left the property management business, she took her real estate license with her, which required me to, um, temporarily find uh, a place to put my real estate license. So I interviewed a couple of places. I found a place, um, I just received, you know, a marketing mail from a real estate brokerage called Vision Realty Centers. They have a Livonia office. I think they also have a couple other locations, but I got, I went in, I interviewed with the broker. Um, they had a really great, um, commission structure where uh, as soon as you made the, co- their company, um, uh, I don't know, 6,000 or something like that, you could have a hundred percent for the rest of the year. So that was pretty attractive to me. And that's a pretty low cap. Yeah. They offered a lot of training. Um, and I just dove in. I mean, I, uh, I, I 
I attended all the trainings, um, all the speakers. Um, I was constantly meeting with my broker and just, you know, about my deals and wanting to kind of, um, soak in all of the expertise. And, um, so I, at that time, the real estate market at the end of 2012 was really starting to pick up. So I was working all my leads and I was prospecting and I was doing all the things that they say you're supposed to do. And I was, you know, getting deals and getting business and just really feel, feeling very, starting to feel very confident in my abilities. And, um, when I left there, I think I did two years there, you know, I was definitely one of their top salespeople. Um, the reason that I left was because in 2013, uh, a, bro a downtown brokerage called the Loft Warehouse, uh, had contacted me. They were, um, doing a lot of business with investors, um, who were asking them to manage their properties. And, you know, a hundred properties later, they said, we're not a property management business. <laughs> we're a real estate company. We need to find somebody to handle this for us. So they found my management company. We signed, you know, sort of a subcontracting agreement. So, you know, they sign the contracts, they do all the leasing, you know, and then they pass them over to us to manage. So we picked up, you know, a hundred, high-end condominiums downtown that we manage and continue to manage. And that portfolio has grown as well. Not a bad thing at all, huh? Yeah. Damn. So they said to me when we joined up, they said, you know, you're welcome to move your real estate license over to us. You, you're not required to, but you're welcome to. And when my contract expired with vision, you know, after I, cause every year your cap renews. So I waited till, you know, I, I was at a hundred percent, you know, for several months, I wanted to exploit that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so when my, when my contract was up, I moved my license in 2014 and, um, I love being with the loft warehouse. I've done very well there. So I've been able to take my skills and expertise and, uh, move into a much higher, um, ticket value inventory. So got to sell more, you got to sell more expensive, one mm -hmm. of the two or both. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do, I mean, I close on a $68,000 house on Monday and I'll close a $500,000 house, you know, by the end of the month. So, but also 120 was $120,000 frame house. It, I think if I'm not mistaken, that has to be one of the highest sales numbers. Cause I had a client who was talking about the one in Philadelphia. I am. Okay. Yeah, I am. 135,000. $135,000. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. All right. Walk me through. Cause this is crazy for mm -hmm. me. I, I, it's an exciting time to be alive in Detroit yeah. to see it come back. Cause that true. means all sorts of things are now possible in that yes. neighborhood. Yes. So, um, I started, I, I have a investor client. Um, he was buying a house in Island View, and the listing agent was so inept that the seller eventually said, just give me permission to talk to the buyer agent directly. So he and I got this deal done. You know, she got paid, So, but we kind of cut her out of the negotiations because she was just failing at her job. So after that deal closed, he said, I'm trying to upgrade my Rolodex, as I believe the, the, the phrase he used, and I would love to work with you on something else in the future. Um, he's an investor. He buys uh, failing uh, mortgages from, from lenders. So usually he wholesales them. You know, he, he buys these failing notes, he forecloses, he sells them at wholesale because usually they're investment properties and in, you know, not desirable areas. 
So he got this one in Philadelphia. He called me up and he said, do you think we could do a flip here? Do you think that there would this would be desirable for people kind of moving into the downtown area? I took a look at it and I said, absolutely. You have to let me pick out all the finishes because I know what people want and I will sell it for you. We were thinking originally like 125000 um, that we could sell it for, which the numbers he said he would work for him, but we ended up selling it at 135 And I was right. There is it's this in-between area kind of north of, you know, New Center and Midtown, but south of Boston Edison. So it's kind of a little bit of a no man's land. Most of the houses that sell there um, are not renovated, need a ton of work, you know, maybe sell for $50,000. Um, but I knew that there was this this niche of in the $100,000 range where you have buyers that really want to be in that downtown market, but can't afford $200,000 and above price tags in Woodbridge and Boston Edison and West Village and all these Corktown and all these areas. So I knew that there was a demand and I knew people would live in a little bit of a no man's land if they could have an up- updated house. I-, I just had this suspicion and I felt fairly confident that an appraiser, they're not going to use these $50,000 houses because they're not renovated. How are you so confident? Cause I, I looked at it. I'm like, how the hell <laughs> beautiful house. And I was, I was the asshole skeptic. Like, how's this going to appraise? Right. Well, so you were right. I was wrong. Yeah. So uh, an appraiser, they had, they had two options. They could use, um, new center, like new center commons, uh, Virginia park area and Boston Edison as their comps, or they could use what's in this right in the general vicinity, um, which would not be comparable. It would be comparable because of location and size, but not uh, for the level of finish because these are houses that need full renovations. Whereas here's a house that has um, remodeled kitchen and bathroom and completely updated. Um, So, you know, what I know about appraisals, I knew that they were going to go, you know, Boston, the closest most similar houses, which were still less than a mile away. Um, I just felt confident that, that they were going to, to pick those houses instead. And I, you know, I always go to my appraisals. I give the appraisal appraiser an information package. I give them the market data that I use, you know, that I would think that they would want to use. I give them a list of all of the updates that have been done to the home and when, um, so I came armed with information and the first appraiser they met with, he said, are there any comps for this? You know, right when he walked in and I'm like, okay, it's going <laughs> to be like that. I said, well, this is where, where I'm coming from when I price this. And I said, and here's all my information and he made it happen. So he must've saw what I saw once he kind of looked at the data and said, yeah, there's nothing else around here. That's I would consider comparable. So I am going to look in those adjacent historic districts. Jen, I think you're a developer hidden and a real estate agent <laughs> and property manager's job or body here because that it, your risk taking, I don't know where your risk taking is on the chart, but it's on the significantly on the hiring, but you seem to win too. Well, I've also been in the city long enough that I um, have a sense of, you know, I, I just have an intuition about things. Well, you're who I called when I put that Woodbridge property <laughs> under contract, which uh, ended up selling for, you know what I sold that for? Hundred and eight thousand dollars. Oh wow. Yeah. Somebody got a good deal. They got a steal a deal. Uh-huh. Mr. John Wilcox, you're welcome. It did so, need a lot of work though. It did need a lot of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Worth it though. Can um, you get financing? You know, he bought all cash. Okay. He hasn't refied yet. So okay. we'll see. He was really worried about the refi, mm-hmm. but eventually I'm like, who cares? You are you telling me you don't want to be in Woodbridge for a mm-hmm. hundred and eight thousand dollars? Just 
you know, make it rent ready and mm-hmm. just wait and let the tenant pay off. So you're the person I called. You helped me close that deal. So thank you very much. You're I appreciate welcome. it. So that's awesome. Um, oh, and then yeah, go um, ahead. Sorry. Can, speaking of development, if you want to get into I do, this yeah. other brush part. That's exactly where I was heading. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Go right there. Okay. Tell me about this. This is exciting. Okay. First, explain Brush Park to people because okay. so they have no idea. Brush Park is the closest neighborhood to downtown. It is literally just north of the central business district on the other side of I-75, which sort of cuts right through the north end of the central business district. Um, so within blocks from Tiger Stadium, Ford Field, which is where um, the Detroit Lion football team play. Um, and right by all the theaters and restaurants right downtown. It is considered the south end of Midtown. Um, so it was the first neighborhood of Detroit. So it was where all of the mansions were built, these beautiful opulent mansions that were built in the like 1860s, 1880s. Gorgeous. I mean, ridiculously gorgeous. And also, um, you know, so when people started exiting the city in droves, um, there weren't a lot of people that wanted that could afford these big mansions that actually wanted to live in the city. The people that could afford something like that didn't want to live in the city. So they ended up usually getting divided up into tenement houses and rooming houses and old folks homes. And eventually in the nineties, most of them burned down or fell down or, you know, so right now brush park is experiencing a big redevelopment, but if you look at it now, it's mostly vacant land. It's lost 90% of the housing stock. So my business partners and I purchased one of the remaining mansions on Edmund Place, 291 Edmund. Um, so you can check that out uh, from uh, some, you know, from this owner in 2005. Our idea was to do um, condo conversion for condominiums. So we got all of our financing together. We contractor, everything is in place. Um, the lender that we use for our construction financing, which Michigan Heritage Bank, um, they told us after the fact that um, in their uh, credit committee meeting um, that the one of the people in the meeting said, are we doing a fa- them a favor by not approving this project? Because the margins were so tight. And there was a little whiff of the economy crashing at that point in 2006 you know things were there were there was some sort of signs on the horizon um so you know our our whole project was based on this aftermarket value for these condominiums what we could sell them for so project was built uh first condo sold for full price i want to say maybe 285,000 uh market is swiftly crashing at this point second condo sold for half price michigan heritage bank was the first bank in the state of Michigan to go into receivership during the recession so the assets were transferred to the fdic and i negotiated short sales for the remaining two for twenty five thousand dollars with the fdic I wish I would have bought all of these, right? I was like, it's never coming back. <laughs> and the current owner is ready to sell one of them for about 400000 Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, that's just – that's insane mm-hmm. right there. You want to talk about the full cycle mm-hmm. right there and probably, frankly, still going up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Still, the, de- I, the demand is crazy mm-hmm. high. We have so many people wanting to look down there. Mm-hmm. I spent three months trying to find some place for a guy down there. It's, just, it's so difficult, so – that swing is huge, though. Mm-hmm. So for $25,000 in 2000, 
2011, I think. Oh my God. Yeah. To 400,000. When did that sell or getting ready to sell 2000? Uh, it's so. not in the market yet, but we're talking about it. Oh yeah. yeah. He's going to get it. Yeah. yeah he's going to get it or very close to. Um, so we made no money on this project, obviously. No. And I think we ended up probably stiffing our contractor in the end. Um, we just, you know, but I mean, there was, there was probably, there was no money <laughs> left to you. It is a little bit like musical chairs at the end, isn't yeah. it? You don't want to be the last person to sit down, but you not exactly want to be the first either. Right. right? So um, this project, though, I'm so glad I participated. I mean, this this is such a beautiful property. Um, we were able to preserve a lot of um, the historic components of it, and I'm just proud to have been a part of it. You got to keep it around. That's mm-hmm. a pretty big project. Yeah. Speaking of which, you got any future projects you're working on? So the, the Grand Boulevard one yeah. is, is in process. That, that one is... Um, Hopefully we'll start construction this year if everything comes together. When you think sometime in the spring or summer? I hope by summer. Okay. I hope that we don't have to push it back another year. Was there anything, I mean, anything you want to put out here? So I have about 1,500 weekly listeners. About 70% are in the state of Michigan Mm -hmm. and about 30% are out of state or out of country. Okay. So mostly investors, some real estate agents, but so there's a lot of people out there listening. Okay. I don't know if there's anything they could do to help, but sure. Well, I'll just put it out there. So I had mentioned our current tenant, Detroit teacher village who signed a letter of intent for to lease the space. The challenge that we're having with lenders is, you know, they can run mine and my business partner's credit and we're, you know, very lendable people. Um, but the bank doesn't care about me and my, you know, they care a little bit. Um, who they're loaning the money to, they care more about our tenant because they want to know if the rent money is going to be coming in every month and they're going to get their mortgage payment. And this tenant doesn't have a history of existing as a business currently. And so they're not lendable. So we really, what we need is um, for either them to be able to partner with somebody who does have stronger financial backing, or we need to find somebody who can show their books and say, we have already been existing as a business. Here are our books is how much money we bring in every year. We can support the rental rate already based on how we've been performing. That's what our bank is looking for. So that's our magic, uh, you know, that's our magic solution to making this work. So if anybody is interested in, um, a rental space, uh, about 4,300 square feet plus parking plus, um, a basement, um, for about $17 a square foot uh, per year, uh, triple net. That's pretty good. It's a very cool. And you have the opportunity to help build out the space, you know, make it the way you want it to. And it, it's gorgeous. Do you have any idea who would be your perfect anchor tenant? Like, is there an industry or something you think? Because you, you've been working this project yes, for a long time. I imagine time. that yeah. it would be um, it would be an architecture firm, a design firm, some sort of creative, a tech company, uh, somebody like that. All right. Put that out in the universe. So how do you want them to contact you for that? They can email me. Okay. At jndcells at gmail.com. All right. So what do you think beyond this, the future mm-hmm. uh, holds for you? Because it seems like you have a, you plan pretty far into the future, it appears. <laughs> at least from the outside looking in, it looks like you um, have some ideas about where you're going. I'm forced to hold on to property <laughs> until they appreciate value. I'm going with mad genius, all right? Okay. You could pitch it however you well, want. So, so what I'm looking at now is where um, my uh, my life partner and I, um, 
when I say partner, it's not a professional partner. So my, my boyfriend and I are, are looking at, um, buying a home, um, sort of in that no man's land area that we talked about, like North of, um, uh, midtown. Um, cause my thoughts are that whole area is the it's next explode. Yeah. yeah. So we need, I want to buy something now before I have to pay quadruple for it. So. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're telling me cause I'll keep a lookout too. Cause yeah. I'm actually actively prospecting and cold calling that area. Cause I have clients okay. looking too. Okay. So. so yeah, we're picking up a house. Um, right now we're, I think today's the last day of due diligence. So we'll probably end up moving forward with that. But, Ooh, so you got one. Yeah. So All the, right. so the plan would be to probably run it out for a few years and then maybe when, when Woodbridge gets a little too like yuppie and, and difficult to deal with right now we have a, that's that may happen sooner than we want because we have a fret house two doors down from us. Um, as we'll just keep the Woodbridge one as a rental, um, completely a rental and then move into that the one on sort of the north end uh Woodward, Woodward Village area. So I'd like to buy it, start buying up more property over there because right now nobody wants to live over there and I have a very adventurous spirit. I don't mind. Yeah, you, your risk taking is pretty off the chart, but it seems to be tempered by knowledge and just pure grit, right? <laughs> yeah. Will, I'm going to do this. Plus I I don't mind living in those areas. I have I have two pit bulls. Yeah. Who are very protective of me. I don't worry about a lot. <laughs> they are. Well, no, you're you're a pretty gritty individual too. You've gone through everything you're going through. So what um Obviously, you've, you've some big ups, some big downs, right? Mm-hmm. Made some mistakes, had some wins. Um, what do you think books, podcasts, movies, people, whatever, anything that you think has helped you achieve the amount of success that you've had and get through those times and or anything you think like people should just stay away from or like, ah, don't ever do that. That didn't work. I call this part like the success part. I'm always interested in people's routines, habits, what they consume, how they consume it. I'm always looking for more information. Okay. Well, um, to not sound too like uh, much like uh, like a little crazy, um, I am definitely, um, uh, you know, I, I definitely follow the guidance of the law of attraction. I definitely that's like a big part of. Um, a big part of my repertoire um, is, uh, you know, not, and I think where people kind of get stuck and think that it doesn't work is um, just like the asking for stuff. You know, I think the the second part of it is to get into the receiving mode um, uh, of just feeling good and like uh, being positive and um, just focus on being a happy person, no matter what the outcome. I mean, I've been able to deal with over the years an incredible amount of stress. And so I really became resilient. It sounds like it. That's some <laughs> big ups and some big downs. So I've really been able to to be resilient and to not want to just like always be curled up in a ball. <laughs> How's that crazier than anything else that people believe? You know, I don't think that's going yeah, crazy. So so I'm I'm constantly every day um, just like in the process of always working on raising my vibration because I think that's where the real magic happens. Where that's where the real stuff starts to to happen is when you. Um, just focus on like being in good spirits and feeling good. And that, at least you have a good attitude about it, right? Yeah. And that worked. Anything else or? Um, yeah. So I would say, uh, you know, people are interested in that. Um, not so much like the secret, which I think really uh, popularized the idea of the law of attraction. I don't think that was helpful to me, but there is um, go on YouTube and uh, uh, search for Abraham Hicks 
tons of videos out there and that that's really helps me get into the receiving mode. All right. Sounds awesome. Any other, any books or anything else, like any anything real estate or business related or is it just all. I probably should have no, studied right. more don't... business, but <laughs> you got developments going. On. I don't know what you should I, or shouldn't do. Right. Yeah. Uh, everything is sort of done uh, off the shooting off the hip hmm. in a lot of ways. So you're, I think uh, I have one of my guests on Jeff. He's like, he, he plans part of his life and he keeps the rest of his life open opportunities. Mm -hmm. It sounds like something similar mm -hmm. here. Speaking of which, are you a goal setting person or? Uh, no, no goals. No. Okay. I, I, I say that I'd like to sell 8 million this year, but I don't want to, um, if I don't succeed, that doesn't mean I failed, you know? So that's something that I, I, I. I like the idea of, I want to keep it out there, but I'm not, I'm not actively like, okay, in order to sell 8 million, I need to do this much per month. I need to prospect this many people. Like it's just going to, it's That's exactly gonna happen, what I do. Or it's I do it like all happen. that. Yeah. But I just know that I'm going to do better this year than I did last year. And it'll probably be around 8 million. So mm, I'll just keep awesome. it out there and the universe will take care of the rest. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? It could be anything. It doesn't matter what it is. I just, this is a time I appreciate you coming out and giving us your time and sharing your story and your oh, information. You. And I think we've pretty much covered everything. So um, what about, are you still looking for property management clients? Uh, yeah. Let's, let's put, who would be your perfect? Cause so many, I get this all the time. I really, I didn't know you did property management. I apologize. Um, I have two referrals I do for property management. It sounds like I have a strong third one here, mm -hmm. but I'm not necessarily sure exactly what business you're looking for property management wise. Let's put it out there. I get it all the time. People are always asking me property management, property management. What do you do? How do you do it? And who would be your perfect client? So perfect client would be um, a uh, property that has already um, either tenanted or, or, recently tenanted um we're good at the cleanup jobs but they're really difficult and they don't make us money and we don't like to take them on no um so they've got to be in you know either historic areas which are you know good um strong areas we do management in the suburbs as long as it's mostly like inner ring suburbs it's not too far um condos we're great at managing condominiums we have a lot of experience managing condominiums so uh, uh, we, we just really care about our clients. And I think that's why people come to us and stay with us is because we just, uh, our attention to detail. Um, so I would say that somebody that's looking for just a, uh, just a step up from maybe the service that they're currently getting. Awesome. Jen, I really appreciate your time today. It was really cool catching up. I had a, I had a great time. I was looking forward to this anyway. Folks, definitely highly recommend you go check her out. Go to facebook.com forward slash Jan dot D-I-J-K-E-R-S. The J is silent. Dikers. Hit her up on Instagram at Uma, U-M-A dot Von dot Futures or just search uh, Dan Dikers. Also, you can send her an email. Jan D sells at gmail.com. And all of this is in the show notes. So just go check it out. If you miss it, thank you for your time today, Jan. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for adopting Roger too and give him such a beautiful home with I Wolfie and all that. Love that dog so more much. than most things in my life. It's so hard to let go of dogs, but it's easier when people like you adopt them. So Gene and I really appreciate it too. We love the pictures. We love seeing Roger. Folks, if you enjoy and find this podcast helpful, Rate and review on iTunes, man. Go ahead and do that. Also, share this across social media. 
Um, takes a lot of time out of uh, Jan's day to come do this. She's got shit to sell, money to make, developments to do. So let's see if we can't send a little business, get the word out there. All right, so go ahead and share. And also, if you share it from the Renegade Detroit Investor uh, fan page, if I see you share it, that way I can thank you, and I really appreciate it. For all those who share it and I don't see, I do thank you, and I really do appreciate it, and it really does help. Um, I don't know what happened in the last two weeks, but in the last two weeks, we went from 1,000 weekly listeners to 1,500 weekly listeners. So you guys are doing it. You're sharing. Keep it up. I appreciate it. We really need to get to 5,000 weekly listeners before this podcast starts to make sense. But I'm a little bit like Jan in that I'm, you know, strong-headed and I will do the same thing forever and ever. But help me out. Let's grow up faster. I don't want to grind at this forever. Um, go to RenegadeDetroit.com if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions. If you want to attend any of the local meetings or you're interested, go to Meetup.com forward slash RenegadeDetroitInvestors or Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. If you want to hook up with me on the interwebs, go ahead and look me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat if I ever figure out how to use it at Jeremy A. Burgess. And of course, you always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do, I know I do it every week. I mean it. I want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I'm not sure if you're watching this shit show. Does it look like they have your best interest at heart? Do they look like they care about you? I don't know how you're feeling about your retirement or anything else like that, but uh, I don't exactly get the warm, fuzzy feeling like uh, everything's going to work out all right. So step up, set some goals, pick something, do something every day, get you closer, even if it's one step. And I do want to thank you for listening. I really do appreciate your attention. I know you've been doing lots of other things. And until the next podcast, crush it.